I'm going to read Matthew 7, verses 1 through 14. Then I'm going to pray and ask for God's blessing on his word, and then we will dig into it. So this is Matthew 7, starting uh, in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with a judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs with this holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. We believe this is God's word. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on it. Lord God, there are a lot of things in this passage that are uh, in some ways difficult for us to understand, difficult for us to hear. We come to you tonight after many days and weeks of being in classes, writing papers, doing projects. Um, Many of us are tired and weary and hungry, hungry in our souls to be encouraged. I pray that you would encourage our hearts tonight that you would free us of the burdens of guilt and shame, that you would remind us of your grace and mercy, that you have shown us by sending your son Jesus to die in our place. Lord, you are kind and gracious and merciful, and you love your people so dearly. I pray that you would help us to see that love tonight, that you would send your spirit upon us to, to open our hearts, to open our eyes, to see and understand what you want us to know from this passage. And Lord, most of all, I pray that you would send your spirit upon me to enable me to talk about these things in a way that is good and true and clear and helpful for these students, that it, that it would be encouraging for them, that they would learn about you, about your will, about your love and grace and mercy. I pray that uh, you would help us to understand these things and that you would uh, do and accomplish what you want in us by them. I pray all these things and ask for all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. I pray, uh, amen. Some of y'all might have heard about the the training process, uh, the sort of training regimen that the elite soldiers of the Navy go through, the Navy SEALs. It's famously kind of one of the most rigorous and difficult uh, training programs that they have uh, in the military. You know, what, what is hard about na- being a Navy SEAL, someone might ask. Uh, and, and it could be summed up by this thing that they call Hell Week. And Hell Week is a week of Navy SEAL training that is designed to break you. It's designed to weed people out. It's designed to, like, you know, there's there's a group of, you know, 
mostly men who are, who are coming to train and to uh, try to make it, to try to qualify to be in the Navy SEALs. And this is designed to break them down and only the best, only the, the best of the best can get through it. This is after several weeks of like hard physical training uh, comes Hell Week. They go through this, this week and over this week, they get about four hours of sleep. Not four hours of sleep per day, four hours of sleep. They run more than 200 miles wearing full like gear, not like running outfit, not like little, not, not, not like hokas. They're wearing boots, pants, and every day they're doing about 20 hours a day of physical training. They have to undergo extreme physical suffering. And this training is designed to test their ability to lead, to make sound decisions, remain calm, to operate and function as a soldier, even in sleep deprivation, hypothermia. Some of them like hallucinate during the week. And so it's all testing. And, and the entire time that they're doing it, there's a plate of coffee and donuts like 20 yards of the beach. And all they have to do to go and get those things is quit, is drop out. Um, it's a challenge. It takes physical and mental strength. It takes confidence. It takes the right mindset. It is, it is hard to be a Navy SEAL. Um, why do I, why do I share that? I think that some people take that mindset of like, okay, you have to be the best of the best. You have to be strong. You have to be, be able to withstand grueling amounts of pain. You have to be, have the right confident mindset, the self-reliance. People take that, that mindset and they sometimes apply it to like what strength looks like in the Christian life. And that's not at all helpful. Um, look at this verse, uh, verse 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus is saying that something about the Christian life is hard. The Christian life is hard. What is it about the Christian life that is hard, right? It's, it's not the same thing that is hard about being a Navy SEAL. It's not that, that only the best of the best can be Christians. That's not what Jesus is saying here. It's something that's actually very different. Right? The gospel changes everything. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it changes our relationship with God, our relationship with others, even our relationship with ourselves. And one of the biggest changes that the gospel does in us is it forces us to acknowledge that we can't be enough in ourselves. It forces us to let go of self-reliance, of self-rule, and it forces us to say, yeah, God, you are the Lord. You are God. You are the one ultimately who's in charge of my life. Like we cannot rule our own lives, and if we try to do that, it leads us to destruction. Right? The easy thing, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. It's easy for you to make you the center of your life. In some ways, that's that's the factory default settings is self-love, self, uh, self-centeredness, self-focused, self-obsession. That's the natural way. That's the easy thing for you to do. It takes diligence and effort and, and something else to come in and change you to live a selfless life, to live a God or Christ-centered life. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to true eternal life. This is one of the most difficult things about Christianity. This is the hard thing. Christianity attacks your self-image, your self-reliance. The hard thing about this hard path is if you want to follow Jesus, you must let go of any ideas of self-rule or self-sufficiency, core to Christianity is saying, I'm dependent on someone else for my life. And that's the main thing that I want you to see tonight. Because God is God, because God is the Lord, we ought to let go of self-rule and self-sufficiency. And if you do, if we, if we do that, if we let go of self-rule, if we let God be God, if we let go of like ideas of self-sufficiency, 
there are two examples, two applications, two things that will happen in our lives. We will look to God for right relationships. It's my first point, right relationships. And we will look to God for proper provision. So right relationships, proper provision. These two applications that Jesus makes about not judging others, about not being a hypocrite, and about about prayer, about asking God and, and looking to him to satisfy our needs. These both, both of those things require you to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and that you're not the Lord of your life, that you're not ultimately the one who's in control, that you're not the one who, who decides what's best for you, ultimately in a cosmic scale. Right? There are two things that if you live them out, it shows that you aren't the Lord of your life, that Jesus is. So first off, right relationships. Like I said, the gospel changes our relationships, which is why Jesus says we ought not to judge. Judge not that you be not judged. I'm sure that, th- that this is one of the most quoted Bible verses that you've seen across social media posts or other things. Sometimes uh, the way that it's used is uh, sort of as a shield, as if someone is like kind of a jerk and uh, you say, hey, like you're not being very kind right now. They say, oh, you shouldn't judge. They kind of hide behind that. Uh, what, what does it mean? It's, it does not mean, Jesus is not saying here that we shouldn't have laws, that there shouldn't be you know, actual judges in our court legal system. He's not saying that, right? He's talking about interpersonal relationships here. He's not talking about the state. He's not talking about a, a legal system. He's also not saying uh, don't exercise critical thinking and evaluation. He's not saying don't ever do the act of judging. Uh, because, right, we can see that even in the previous passages. Jesus says in multiple places, don't be like the hypocrites, Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like the pagans. Don't be like these people. That requires a degree of judgment to be able to to look at your behavior and to say, okay, like, am I being, uh, am I living in a proper way or am I living in a a bad way? Right? We have to exercise some sort of judgment to be able to do that. We're supposed to be wise. As Christians, you're supposed to exercise judgment in order to try to figure out, okay, what's the best way for me to honor God and to love other people well? So what is he saying? Jesus here is saying that you should not set yourselves up as judges. He says that in uh, verse 2, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What he's saying is that that you should not be the one who is the judge. And what I mean by that, that the distinction between judging and being a judge um, is essentially, a, like, are you placing yourself in authority over other people? Are you... Um, are you kind of treating other people with cruelty and harshness when they fail to measure up to your standards. That's what he's talking about. Don't, we're not to do that. Um, when we set ourselves up as judges, we, we can be, we're, we're cruel, we're harsh. Jesus is tell us, telling us not to judge other people in order to inflict pain upon them or to, to uh, take revenge upon them, to punish them for either real or perceived slights that they have committed against us. We're, we're not to be fault finders. We're not to be constantly like scanning other people around us and trying to find fault with their actions. We're not trying to be negative and destructive people, hurting other people with our judgmentalness. Our judgment, when we exercise it rightly, should lead us to pursue Jesus in righteousness and holiness, not tear other people down. Um, so that's kind of the distinction that Jesus is making here. And he says, he hints that that is connected to our understanding of the grace that God has given us, Right? Because if we set ourselves up as a judge in this way, it assumes that we have the right and the authority to execute that judgment on other people. 
right? It's to assume that it's really to functionally act like you're the master of whoever it is that you're judging, and they're your servant, or they're your employee, that you're somehow better than them, and you have the you have the right to pass judgment upon them. But that's not true, right? It's to assume that you have a power and authority over others that's not rightfully yours. Of course, that's not true, right? It's to assume that you're more holy or more competent, that you're smarter or somehow more worthier or more righteous than the person that you're judging. Right? We cast ourselves as the Lord and others as servants waiting upon our judgment. But the truth is, like, y'all are not gods. We are not lords. You're not the Lord of one another. We are all equal. We're all on the level playing field. We are all sinful and fallen people. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and receive his grace by a gift. Right? It's not just, we, we also don't, it's not just that we don't have the authority, right? You don't have the authority to function as a judge, but you also don't have the competency. You don't have the ability to do it in a way that is right and good. Right? That's why Jesus uses this metaphor, this example. It's kind of a, a cartoonish example in verses uh, 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? I mean, it's kind of like a cartoonish example. Like Imagine like a, a real like log sticking out of your eye, but you have the audacity to say, oh, you, you, have, a little, you have a little speck, you have a little eyelash in your eye. Let me get that for you. Like, no, the, you cannot see clearly. Our sin has blinded us all to our own sin and, in, and, and has hindered our ability to rightly understand the sin of other people as well. Right? That's, that's why he uses that. And it's hypocritical for us to act like judges when we don't actually have the wisdom and authority to act as judges. John Stott wrote this. He said that no human being is qualified to be the judge of our fellow humans, for we cannot read each other's hearts or assess each other's motives. To be judgmental in this way is to presume arrogantly, to anticipate the day of judgment, to usurp the prerogative of the divine judge, in fact, to try and play God. Right? When, when y'all act judgmental towards one another, when you assume that you know what's going on in that person's heart, that you've in, interpreted their words correctly, really what you're doing is like playing God. When you um, try to kind of pay them back by either withholding affection or speaking sarcastically to them or just kind of ghosting them, there's a sense in which you are elevating yourself and, and taking pushing God out of his throne and taking his place, right? Because what are you doing when you do that? You're, you're assuming I have the ground, I have the moral or righteousness type standing to be able to pass that kind of judgment. And the, the Bible says that it's just, it's not true, we don't. Right? The gospel has to change our relationships and we cannot judge because the truth is that we are equal before the cross of Jesus. We are all sinful and fallen short of God's glory. And the only thing that, that saves us, the only thing that brings us into God's kingdom, the only thing that brings us the gospel is the grace and love and mercy of Jesus. The only differentiating factor between any people, ultimately, in a, in a cosmic scale, is whether people have come to know Jesus or not. That's the dividing line. You know, it, it doesn't matter if uh, someone is, no matter how many righteous acts they do, if they do not know Jesus, their state will be as bad as the worst criminal abuser. There's a pastor named Alistair Begg who uh, is fairly well known. Um, in his, one of his sermons, he invites us to imagine the thief on the cross. There's this guy who was crucified alongside Jesus. And initially, he, uh, he made fun of Jesus. Jesus had 
you know, claim to be a savior, claim to be the Messiah, and this guy mocks him. But then, kind of as they're about to be executed and they're about to die, this thief uh, tell, basically says to Jesus, Lord, like, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Like, imagine that thief on the cross getting to heaven, like, being there. <laughs> and you could imagine, like, an angel, I don't think this necessarily actually happens, but, like, for the purposes of this, just imagine. Um, like, an angel being like, hey, like, wh- how did you get here, basically? Like, why are you here? He had never been to a Bible study. The thief on the cross had never been baptized. He had never been part of a church. He was a thief, right? He was a sinner. He was not able to describe the gospel or to describe and put into words the theology of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He was not able to understand the doctrine of scripture. And like, you know, imagine the angel being like, man, okay, so like, why why do you think you can be here? What's the basis for your being here? His only answer would be, well, the guy on the middle cross said I could come. The guy who was on the middle cross said I could be here. Jesus said I could come. All the other stuff doesn't count, didn't count for anything for him. Because he met Jesus and in some way put his faith in Jesus, he was received into the arms of the Father. And so, if that's true, then you have no reason to be able to judge anyone. Because the only reason you stand before God is the same. It's not based on your intelligence, your righteousness, your cleverness, it's dependent entirely upon what Jesus has done for us, right? What Jesus has done for us has earned eternal life and eternal approval from God through Jesus's righteousness. If that's true, then we cannot be judges. We cannot judge, right? And so um, there's a lot of kind of ways that we could apply this. Um, Like, I think one is uh, don't assume the worst motives of other people. Like, 1 Corinthians 13 says that love believes all things. Most people respond to difficulty or to kind of like the little daily issues or conflicts between friends or roommates in one of two ways. One is like y'all blow up and yell at them and or tell them off. Or uh, y'all passively, aggressively kind of like just kind of let them know that you're upset with them without actually saying that you're upset with them. And things are awkward for a little while until either you forget it and go back to being normal or until they pester you enough saying, hey, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? That like there's a blow up fight anyway. Um, and so like what, what this passage calls us to is to examine ourselves first. Take the plank out of your own eye. Look at yourself and be like, OK, how am I contributing to this situation? How am I the problem here? Yo, I've, I've, probably, I've met with like hundreds of students in my time at Georgia Southern, and I can only think of one time when a student came to me and said, hey, like, um, the thing, I think I might be a bad friend. Like, how should I, like, deal with that? <laughs> Every single other, there's a lot of meetings that I don't talk about anything like this, but a lot, any other meeting where there's some kind of issue between friends or roommates, it's always, oh my gosh, they are really frustrating me. They are really causing the problem. They are not doing the dishes. They are borrowing uh, pieces of clothing without, without asking me. They are uh, being inconsiderate about uh, different parts of the house, like or or whatever. Like think about it. They are the problem. That's people's first reaction. That's my first reaction, honestly. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm the same way. And this passage invites us. This passage invites you to take a look at yourself and to ask if you might be part of the problem. Like look at your own sin and to say, okay, how is my sin hurting other people? Because if it's true that you have received Jesus, if you've come to know Jesus then it means that God will not hold your sin against you. So it can't actually hurt you. So you should be 
able and willing to receive criticism. You should be able and willing to say, yeah, I'm the one who's kind of causing problems here. I am the one who might be needing to repent. And the flip side, if you're unwilling to look at yourselves that way, if you're like unwilling to admit that you might be part of the problem or that you might have some sin in your heart, then it says that, that you don't really believe that God loves you based on his grace. It says that if you're unwilling to acknowledge yourself as part of the problem, then you are living as if you're standing before God and others is based on your own righteousness. And that's hard for us to hear and understand. But what I want you to know is that like God's invitation to receive the grace of Jesus is open for anyone who would receive it, even now. Right? God has provided everything for you, including salvation, and he is the one that we should be looking to, which frees us to not have to win every single conversation, to not have to win every argument or every engagement with any of our roommates or friends. You can repent, you can own up to your sin because you know that God has given you a righteousness that is greater than any of that. He has provided everything for us, which brings me to my second point, that we should also look to God for proper provision. One way of living in dependence upon God is is giving up the power and and the place of being a judge, a judgmental person, and, and letting God be the judge, letting God be God, but also looking to him to be the person to provide for you. The second way that we can let go of self-rule and self-sufficiency is looking to God to provide for us, which is what Jesus is talking about in verses 7 through 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Right? He's, he's inviting us to ask God for things. We talked about the Lord's Prayer earlier in the semester, and, and there he kind of gave us some pointers. Jesus is really talking about the heart behind asking in this passage, why we can ask and boldly seek for for things and trust that God will take care of us. Uh, we talk about provision a lot. Um, here's a quick definition. Provision is anything that is provided. And that might sound kind of uh, circular, but but what I want you all to see is like in, in, in everything that we do, all of our circumstances, according to the Bible, all of our circumstances that add up to our lives, whether it's our place that we live, the food that we eat, the friends that we have, all of those circumstances are things that God has provided for us. The things that God has blessed us with. Because we believe that God works through both supernatural and ordinary means. Right? Think about our circumstances. Usually there's two ways, there's two different kind of camps that the world tells us to relate to them. As I was thinking about this, this talk, um, like there's, you could, re, you could relate to our circumstances from a possible posture of like hustle culture, or you can just like float through life. Hustle culture is like to, to grind it out, to work hard, to work yourself to the bone, to make sure that you're ahead, to make it for yourself. Right? Like you're the person who's going to make it happen. And in this perspective, our circumstances and di- desires are everything. Like that's They take the top spot in your priority list. Hustle, grind it out, make it happen. But then there's also some parts of our culture, uh, some parts of the world's wisdom that says, yeah, just like flo- float along. Just like be at peace. Just kind of like z- be zen and not worry or stress and whatever happens, happens. Right, receive what the universe gives you, or like you know, manifest it. Um, in this perspective, like your circumstances and desires don't really matter because it's like, oh yeah, like whatever happens, happens. Um, this is neither of those things. This is neither of those things. Jesus is saying something completely different. Ask, and you'll receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. There is another person involved in your circumstances besides you. And it's God, and he loves you, and he wants to bless you, is what this is saying. He wants to take care of you. He wants to provide for you. 
God is the source of the giving by which we receive, but he also commands us to ask and seek and to knock. Like, we have a part to play. He's not just saying, okay, like, go and sit in a room by yourself and and whatever I'm going to give you is going to come to you. No, he involves our efforts and our labor as a part of the fulfilling of those things, right? He, He invites us to pray and to make our desires known to God and then to honor him by stepping out in faith to seek those things. There's two examples. One is a kind of a, is a spiritual example, right? God has met our greatest need by sending his son Jesus to die for our sins so that we can have our sins forgiven and receive Christ's righteousness. Right? And so if you want to be saved, if you want to grow in your faith, ask God. He will give it to you. Romans 10.13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise. And yet, right, so, so what that means is you can ask God and call on his name. Believe that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. That's a promise. And yet, you are also called in that to step out in faith and to seek Jesus. To seek him in the ways that he has said that you can find him. To live like a Christian. To read your Bible. To go to church, right? Not because those things establish you. Not because not those things create your life in Christ. But because those are things that they're the means by which God has appointed for Christians to grow in understanding and awareness of God and his love. Okay, that's a, that's a big kind of high-level spiritual example. Here's a more mundane example. You want to have enough money to pay for your basic needs. So what Jesus is calling us to do there is to ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. Pray and ask God to provide for you. Provide for your daily bread. Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer that we should pray for our daily bread and then step out in faith, go get a job and work hard. Because Jesus is at work through even our efforts. But you need to know it's not you alone that is that is present in the process of providing. That's a distinction between what Jesus is saying here and anything that the world comes up with. Ask and you'll receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. Jesus uses this imagery, I think a, a helpful illustration. Sometimes we read this and we're like, okay, like there's, there's times that I like pray for things and I don't like get it. So what, what do I do with that, Jesus? What do I do with that, Nathaniel? Um, and I think his, his metaphor, his imagery here of uh, parenting is really helpful. He says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? Right? Like a parent is never going to give their child who they love if he asks for fish, they're not going to give him a rattlesnake. If he asks for something to eat, they're not going to give him rocks. Like that's not that just wouldn't even enter into a loving parent's mindset. Right? He's good, and therefore he wants to give good gifts to his children. But he's also wise, and knows what gifts are good and what gifts are not, and what gifts are good in the right time for you. So imagine, like imagine a five-year-old. Uh, there's a lot of five-year-olds at my church. And, uh, you know, they, they're like, I don't know, like yay high, something like that. They love to run around. They love to kind of like get into trouble. Um, I feel like after church, a church service, they're always like crawling under the like chairs for some reason. Um, now imagine that five-year-old asks their parents for a BMW M5 series sports car for Christmas this year. Be a pretty like uh, educated five-year-old on cars. Would that car be a good gift for that five-year-old? No. No, it would not. The five-year-old's not old enough, not mature enough, not tall enough, not responsible enough to relate to that car in any reasonable way. In order to get any enjoyment out of it, in order to be a good steward of that gift, um, it would probably not even really be dangerous because I don't think that they could actually uh, 
activate in any way to, to provide danger, but, you know, it, it would not be a good gift. Loving and wise parents would know not to give a five-year-old a car. But fast forward. Fast forward till uh, the five-year-old is now a 16-year-old. The 16-year-old has passed their driver's test. They've received a license. They've done the proper uh, education. They've, they've, they've acted responsible and mature for a 16-year-old. Would a car at that stage be a good gift for a 16-year-old? Be a very generous gift, a super generous gift. But yes, a good gift. Their growth and their maturity means that they could drive it safely, that they could use it for its proper purpose, that they could enjoy the good that would go along with that gift. It's a good gift in the right time. So in a similar way, God, like and those, those are normal human parents. Any human parent could come to that decision. But human parents are sinful. Jesus says in verse 11, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Right? God knows all things. His knowledge is infinite. His wisdom is infinite. And he's outside of time. Like He knows the end from the beginning. He knows every step of your lives. He knows every breath that you're going to take. And so if that's true, if God and, and he's infinitely kind and good, if, he, if, if we humans who are sinful can give good gifts, how much more is God going to be able to give you the right gift at the right time in the right way? God is committed, if you are his son or daughter, only to give you good gifts and only at the right time. Right? And that doesn't mean that we always know what he's doing in our lives. Sometimes things happen and it feels like God is not giving us bread. He's giving us stones. Sometimes it might feel like, God, you didn't give me a fish. You gave me a poisonous snake. I, uh, when I was in college, I was dating a girl who I, I like, thought that I was going to marry, um, and she broke up with me. And it was really painful for me. I was like, God, what are you doing? What is this? This feels like a poisonous snake. It was painful. But over time, that pain revealed to me my sinful idolatry that was present in my heart and God's kindness and mercy in removing something that was bad for me from my life. There are things in this life that we might never know the why about, but we can always be confident that God is good and that he loves us and that he's committed to giving us good gifts at the right time. He will do it. And how much more is he going to do it when we ask him for them? When we, when we ask him for things, he's always going to give us, if not the thing that we ask for, he's going to give us something that makes us say, oh, that's, this is what I wanted all along. God is committed to giving us good things. So ask boldly, like, what do you want? Is it a job? Is it a, is it a spouse? Is it to know him more deeply? I mean, those are all good things to ask for. Ask him for them and trust that he is either going to give you exactly what you ask for or he's going to give you something that is better suited for you, that is a better gift than what you asked for originally. Right? Living with God, living in context of God as your Lord, it means living uh, living like these things are true. Living these things out, proclaim through your actions that Jesus is your Lord. Living with God as King, God as your Lord, means that you will do this. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the summary of the law. Do unto others that you wish that they would do for you. Like that's, a, that's a heavy burden in some ways. But we can do it if we let God be God. If we let God be our Lord and not try to cling on to self-rule. If we let Jesus be Lord and live into the eternal life that comes with that confession, comes with that surrender. We are brought near to him only by the love and sacrifice of his son. Our righteousness, our moral actions don't, don't play into it at all. 
So we are free to relate to the good gifts that God gives us, to relate to the, the good things that we want to do for Jesus in a healthy way, not being controlled by them, surrendering and trusting God's gracious and loving provision for us. I invite you to, to rest upon that, to rest upon the finished work of Jesus and to, to look to God as your Lord and let go of self-rule. Like, don't be the gods of your life. It is a miserable and painful thing. You are not a good God. The things that you might be tempted to look to are not good gods for you. They will kill you and enslave you. But God will, has, if you're in Christ, given you eternal life. Let's pray. Father, you are the Lord of Lords. You are good above everything else that we might consider to be good. I pray that you would send your spirit upon us and open our eyes to ways that each of us needs to grow, to grow in love for you and love for our neighbor. I pray that you would just work in the lives of these students, and that you would help them to see even more your grace and mercy. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for providing for us all that we need. It is more than we deserve. Um, Lord, I pray that you would bless these students. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.